Welcome to At Work in America, sponsored by Paychex. We welcome a wide and exceptionally impressive array of guests, business leaders, HR leaders, academics, practitioners, consultants, and authors, to talk about the most timely, relevant, and challenging issues that are influencing the workplace today. At Work in America digs in behind the headlines and trends to the stories of real people making a difference in the world of work. And now here are your hosts, Steve Bowes and Trish McFarland-Steed. Trish, hey, it's an exciting day. How are you? It's our first new show in a way. I feel like it's a brand new podcast. I feel like it is too. I feel like we have the the history of the last 12 to 13 years doing the show, but now we're kind of in a new direction. I like the storytelling direction. So I hope everyone else enjoys it too. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, the HR Happy Hour was really good to both of us and the HR Happy Hour still exists, right? It, it's our network. It All the shows exist under that umbrella, but we thought we would take this show, our show in this new direction uh, at work in America. And, I mean, and, and we've got a great topic and a great guest to kind of relaunch and, and re-kick off the brand. Trish, we're talking about a really important topic which is about the benefits of hi- and the importance, honestly, of hiring people who've had some criminal history, criminal background, right? Giving those people another chance, perhaps a second chance or really a fair chance, maybe is a better way to say it. Our guest today to talk about that is Jeff Korzenik. He's the author of Untapped Talent, which for benefit of the video, oh, there it is. I'm holding it up right now. I have my copy. <laughs> we are so excited to welcome our special guest to the show, Jeff Korzenik. He's also the chief investment strategist at one of the largest banks in America, where he is responsible for the investment strategy and the allocation of, of lots of money. Let's just leave it at that. He's a regular guest on CNBC, Fox Business News, and Bloomberg TV. We should probably get some other advice from Jeff after the show. His perspective on the economy, markets, manufacturing, and the workforce are frequently cited in the financial and business press. But may, perhaps more importantly, at least for us today, he's the author of the groundbreaking book, Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community, which shares the business case and best practices for hiring people with criminal backgrounds. Jeff, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Jeff. I, we, Trish and I were talking before the show with you a little bit. We've gone through the book. It's such a great topic. We're, we're really, really interested in it. Before we get into some of the, really the nuts and bolts of what employers can really do to take steps into tapping into that, this untapped talent pool, which they really need to do. I'd love to just get a couple of minutes from you on what brought you a banker who's on CNBC talking about the markets of all things to this topic, to, to trying to make that connection between uh, this untapped uh, pool of labor and, and employers? What, what, what drove so, you to that? So I really have two answers. I'll give you the official answer, and then th- there's a little bit of an unofficial answer I'd be happy to share. The official answer is, as you stated, my job is to oversee investments, but you can't oversee investments without understanding what's going on in the economy, and you can't understand what's going on in the economy without understanding what's going on in the labor force. And uh, back around 2013, 2014, I started to do a deep dive into why so many people were missing from the labor force, a hot topic at the time, and came to the conclusion that social ills were of such a magnitude during that cycle that they actually became economic ills and really major economic impediments to growth. 
And uh, at the time that I had identified them and, and criminal justice involvement is a big one, I'd also started to come across companies that had uh, solved this. They had figured out how to create viable pipelines of talent with people who had justice involvement in their lives. And uh, as I traveled and collected the stories of these different companies, I found they all had essentially the same model. So I started sharing that model. But the unofficial answer is uh, that uh, I, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which is a very, very poor city. Uh, my father came from a very poor background and he was the first in family to, to, to make it. He did the heavy lifting in our family. Mm -hmm. um, I, he passed away uh, in 2003. He was first in family to go to college, um, son of immigrants, um, by the way, had degrees from Harvard and Yale, so did, did, did it very well, and, uh, but never lost touch with his roots. And he would go and visit his old neighborhood uh, under the guise of doing errands. And as an eight or 10 year old, I would go with him sometimes. And, and one of these visits, he talked to a friend of his who owned a store, chatted, had a nice conversation. As we walked away, my dad said, you know, my friend was in prison. And I asked for what? And my father said, for murder, a crime of passion. And then my father said something that stuck with me forever. He said, he's done his time. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a value. And I want to make sure that people who have done their time have the same opportunities to live the American dream that the rest of us have. You know, thank you for, for sharing both the professional side of why you're doing it, but also that really highly personal side. I think that a lot of listeners can relate to that. We either, maybe there is someone in our family who's, who's served time and certainly has, has done their time to your point or friends of family, um, you know, neighborhood people, uh, I think for me personally, I was sharing this with you before the recording, but having kind of grown up working in human resources, my first job was working for Manpower International and probably 80% of the workforce that we hired, or at least at my location was industrial. And we always hired people who had maybe criminal records or even just arrests, right? Maybe they weren't convicted of something, but, um, by and large, we found them to be very reliable workers. They were definitely wanting to kind of get their lives back on track. So for me, it's it's the idea that you've written about not just sort of the financial implications of this topic, but the human side of it. Um, I'd love if you could maybe share a little bit before we really dig deep into kind of the, the ins and outs of everything. But one of the things that sticks out is there's a story that you talk about um, with JBM packaging. So if we could maybe start there, let's start with the story, right? That's the focus of the new podcast. And, and then we'll kind of dissect how we get to that point of this being something that organizations could benefit from. Sure. Uh, I had any number of companies I could have chosen as the case study, but many of the companies that I had studied had built from the ground up as sort of social enterprises, or they had a, a CEO who had uh, family connections to justice involvement, or maybe a very, very deep faith commitment. And I wanted to use as an example, someone who just came at it purely from the business perspective. So the, uh, this is a company uh, located about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. They are in a county seat, but it's a lot, somewhat rural county. There's no public transit anywhere. And they had found, like many companies had around 2018, 2019, they had run out of labor. They just couldn't get any workers to, to fill their needs 
let alone grow their company. And this is a and, manufacturing company too, by the way, I didn't mean to interrupt. This is, this yes. is not a big work from home kind of deal. No, no, no. This is, this, yeah. they make, they make uh, envelopes and they've been doing it second generation family business. They've been doing it for 60 plus years um, and well-established and they'd never run into this kind of problem before. And they tried everything, bringing in retirees, trying to get them back to work, doing tours of high schoolers, nothing, nothing stuck. And because the CEO at church had heard of a second chance employer in neighboring Cincinnati, he thought he'd give it a try. And uh, it became so successful, not without bumps along the road, that they have expanded the practice. It has uh, changed the entire culture to one that's much more focused on innovation and much more mission driven across a broad number of categories. They've uh, now have a quarter to a third of their workforce is, uh, they call it fair chance, uh, second chance people people with uh, criminal records. They've set up a paid training program in a, an Ohio State Correctional Facility. They actually had one of their uh, workers had gotten into trouble, was in a prison. They worked with the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction to have that individual transferred to this prison where they had good HVAC facilities. And he's the trainer. And they don't sell any product from there. They don't want to be involved in, you know, quote unquote, prison labor. They recycle any envelopes made there, but they pay training. He's got a, a pipeline of already trained individuals for their complex machinery. There is a piece of this story that didn't make the book because it happened after the book was published. This company's business has gone so well that they've expanded. They've opened a second facility. They chose to open this facility, not in the suburbs of Cincinnati, not in this town. They've opened it in inner city Cincinnati, the kind of place where businesses would not traditionally start up but they now understand that this is where their talent pool lies if you know how to tap it. So it's just a fabulous example. It, it required a lot of determination, a tremendous amount of leadership. The CEO, Marcus Sheenshang, uh, again, second generation, he, he purchased the company from his father. His father thought he was crazy. Everyone thought he was crazy. He made it work uh, with, with the support of a, a great team that I've had the privilege of meeting. Yeah. Jeff, uh, the case study is fantastic. And it's, uh, it's a big section, like the middle part of the book that dives into what they did. And um, I was really struck by um, two things. One, how dedicated the CEO was to making this work and almost uh, having to sell the concept around to the leadership team, the managerial team, et cetera. And that's the first part. I'd love for you to comment on, on that part of it. And then second was the dedication of the HR team uh, to this as well, because the book shares about, maybe you could expand on a little bit, Jeff, how folks on the HR team at JBM are going to these prisons in person multiple times in a month, it sounded like, to make those connections and build those pipelines. So first, maybe we'll, we'll take the first part first, which is, hey, if you're a leader, whether you're an HR leader or a business leader hearing this, or, 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 or we'll read this book, and want to get this maybe kicked off in their organization, talk a little bit about the kind of getting the right people on board process. I, I think it's critical for companies that want to do this, that you have to get executive leadership. And the, as high up as you can go, if it's a privately owned company, get the owner. If it's a public company, get the CEO, president. Uh, the reason for that is there's so much noise and reputation risk that people fear. It's very difficult for people on the ground, HR and talent acquisition professionals, to take those risks. They need the cover of an executive saying, it's okay to do this. Yeah. 
And uh, so that's critical. I do believe HR and talent acquisition professionals can help lobby higher ups for this. We need to consider this, but ultimately for it to go forward successfully, it has to have the backing of the most senior levels uh, at, at the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's been one, you know, one broad observation. And frankly, I, I um, you know, I tell CEOs that if you want to do this, you have to be very clear. It's not fair to your HR professionals for them to feel there's career risk associated with the kind of risk taking that anything innovative requires. And, yeah. and so I, you know, I, I, I see that. In terms of other executives and getting buy-in, um, it's really interesting. Uh, the group at JBM, like many others, you, you know, they were very uh, uncomfortable, you know, maybe even to the point of afraid. You know, the first time I visited a prison, I had no idea what to expect. And it's very intimidating, you know, these gates and fences and watchtowers and, you know, yeah, leaving um, your, your wallet and your phone in the car and, you know, all, all these kind of things that you, you have to go through. Um, but it's also infectious. Once you see people, um, once you start associating the concept of a resident of a correctional facility as an actual human being, And once you have gone through the experience of helping someone rebuild their life, you want to do it more and more. I mean, we we all love the Christmas story every year, right? It's a story of redemption. We are drawn as human beings to stories of redemption. And this is such an opportunity. It really becomes a privilege, I think, to help in this area. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because when you were kind of talking about the story. And as I'm recalling, just reading it, one of the things that strikes me about not just hiring people, because I think, you know, there are other companies where you hire people who might have a a criminal record um, or an arrest record, for example, but this really took it to that next step of showing both care and concern by, by going into the prison system, right? And you're actually reaching out to inmates at a time when they might not have anybody, right? Everything in their life is, is bad at that point. And so for this company or companies like this to go into the prison system and actually work with them as people, the human side of things, showing care and concern, showing them they have value. Could you talk a little bit about maybe just some experiences you've had, whether it be with some of the people who became employed or whether it's through the employers, what does that feel like for the people actually going through it? One of the things that's been interesting for me on this journey is my own personal interaction with people who've been incarcerated. And and I came at this from other than my father's friend, that one brief meeting at age eight or 10, I I don't think I knew anyone uh, who had been incarcerated or even arrested before this journey. And I since have, you know, now have many friends who've been incarcerated and have had lots of interaction with this this community. One of the things that has struck me is... um, how many people told me who have exited prison often after long terms and for very serious crimes that, that for which it was appropriate to be incarcerated, told me I went in at age 18 mm. and I thought my life was over. And that's a refrain I hear again and again and again. And the sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. uh, of people in prison or if you came to prison through gang membership, you know, you, you never expected to live long anyway. Um, you know, these are the kind of things, I, you know, one of my friends has a tattoo that says, don't cry for me across his chest. That's half of a phrase. Don't cry for me. I'm already dead. 
mm. is the full phrase. And, wow. and it's so common in, um, you know, the overwhelming characteristic of people who go into prison for the first time is that they are poor, they are young, and they are men. And poor young men um, already have a sense typically of limited future. And once they are incarcerated, that goes from limited to zero future. So having a company like JBM or having some of the other companies that start this work while people are incarcerated is so valuable, not just because of the pipeline it creates for them, but the symbolism that's seen. And um, I, I will share with you um, with my own book, this, this influenced, um, the reason it's a paperback and not a hardcover as originally con uh, contracted was because I wanted to address this sense of hopelessness. And uh, a, a very generous uh, philanthropist, someone in the financial services industry, Steve Smith, um, generously uh, has funded sending 500 of these books into prison, into prison libraries. And we do this through a, a Utah-based nonprofit called Bix, Books Inside. You know, you cobble these things together. And um, I did that because I, um, and I've been writing about this for other publications, Barron's Financial um, news magazine, for instance, uh, I got a letter from a prison, a federal prison in Colorado, and this uh, this inmate uh, uh, resident there wrote me. He said, "I just want you to know that your Barron's article on this hangs in our prison library wall, and it gives all of us hope." Man. And I realized that my book could, in part, be a message of hope. So you'll see in the very start of the book is a, uh, and I, I guarantee you, this is the only business book ever written that starts with a section called A Note to the Currently Incarcerated. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and the message is very simple. You think you're a burden. You're not a burden. You're a resource. And we're all going to need you. Yes. And I want that message out there. And uh, so anyway, it, it, but to do that, you can't send hardcovers into prisons because they can be weaponized. It's generally believed. And so I, I worked with HarperCollins Leadership, my publisher, and, and we demoted my book from a, a prestigious hardcover to a paperback. And I was happy to do it. I actually yeah. like it. I prefer the paperback just for me, just carry it around. So easier to lift. Yeah. I, 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 I thank you as well. I just wanted to just mention something real quick in the book. It gets back to Trish, what you were talking about a second ago there in, in the, in the chapter in the book, which is the case study of JBM packaging, which is the company we've been talking about. Uh, the, one of the HR people who's heavily involved in the program, her name's Ashley Caudill in the book. She, there's an anecdote in here where she uh, checks in with one of the uh, employees that JBM has hired through this uh, second chance program or fair chance program as they call it. And, and maybe this employee was having, you know, a little bit of trouble, which honestly pretty much every employee does at some point or another. Right. And uh, so she checks in with them just to see how he's doing. And, and, and in the book, here's the line before answering the employee exclaimed with surprise quote, I've never had anyone ask me, are you okay? So this gets into Jeff, what you're talking about. A lot of these guys and they're mostly guys, right. As you say, just, haven't had, they've come up in tough circumstances, maybe been poor, maybe not had the best family life, maybe uh, just didn't have that kind of loving, nurturing background that we, a lot of us, quite frankly, also, I'll put me in this category, took for granted, right? And yeah. have taken for granted in our lives. So I wanted to bring that up because that was a really kind of moving little story that was in that chapter. It, it, and I, you know, I'm constantly moved. It's, it's hard for me to keep my, you know, dispassionate business face on when doing this. Uh, my friend, John Kufos, who's made some wonderful contributions to the book. He's a uh, uh, well-known and regarded justice reformer, formerly incarcerated uh, he, he, himself. He had substance abuse uh, challenges. And uh, he said, you know, be sure employer to tell employers 
to thank their employees when they do something right, because it may be the first time they've ever been thanked in their life. Yeah. And you, you realize, and I never condone nor excuse the act, the criminal act, right? That the, it is right that there be consequences for those acts. But at the same time, you can recognize that many of the people who are justice involved were victims themselves, often in, in childhood. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing these. I think it's so important to just recognize the emotion that comes behind it, right? This isn't just a, it's not just a business book, right? As you're, you're talking and it's like, I'm tearing up because I'm thinking of actual people I've worked with over the years who were very moved when they had any amount of attention or value or hope given to them, right? Through an employer. Could you maybe talk, you touched a minute ago on some of the risks, And what would you say, if I'm an HR leader, I'm going to be going to my CEO, COO, right? Trying to get maybe something like this going, or at least even, you know, the the initial steps of this going in my organization. What would you tell them about answering that question about risk, right? Because sometimes someone might've committed something that's very serious, right? Um, It doesn't mean they cannot be a good worker in the future. It doesn't mean they don't deserve a chance. So what would the message be to that? I I think the first thing is acknowledgement. There there are three major concerns that come out. One is uh, safety slash liability. Are you endangering your customer or your teammates uh, with this hire and taking on subsequent uh, additional legal liability and financial liability? The second one is a fear that uh, you won't get a good employee. And it's, it's terrible to have a bad employee. Um, and the third is that somehow uh, the fact gets known that you're hiring people with records and it causes a reputational risk that scares away customers. And each of these can be addressed. So I, I, th- I think the first step is this acknowledgement. Here's what you're concerned about. Let me explain how we can address each of these. One, to say you're going to hire someone a criminal, with a criminal record doesn't mean you're going to hire everyone with a criminal record. There there are 19 million people in the United States with felony convictions. I'm not talking about hiring all 19 million. If you can't find a handful out of that 19 million, I'm not sure the problem is is the 19 million, right? Yeah, and even JBM, to interrupt for a second, JBM packaging, the case study we've talked about a lot, and it's it's featured in the book, had some uh, some guidelines about, hey, we're not going to hire these folks. Like if you were a a murderer, et cetera, there were a couple of the car. Yeah, yeah, in their case, crimes against women and children was a no-go for them. Other places... It's very common for employers to start with a lot of no-goes, but they tend to loosen it over time. And one, I, you know, I even tell employers, and and this is, you know, for further along in that conversation, don't automatically exclude people who are convicted of crimes of violence, Mm -hmm. um, because that doesn't mean that they are necessarily violent people, particularly today. They might have been when the crime was committed decades ago. They might not have been. It could have been wrong place, wrong time. Um, my friend Jeff Brown is one of the employers I, I highlight. He's got 500 of his 2,500 employees are, are people with records. Um, he, uh, you know, he said, "Look, for a lot of these uh, uh, people, particularly young men, uh, the drug trade is their only path to getting ahead. Yeah. If you're in the drug trade, like any business, you want to protect your inventory, and that means having a gun. And young men with guns, things are going to happen. And yeah. so." Um, so, so at any rate, you as the employer continue to control who you let in and your process of examining that record is your protection from legal liability. In terms of the uh, 
you know, will it, will this be a good employee or um, uh, to use my, my friend Rob Perez, who runs a second chance uh, bakery and cafes in Lexington, Kentucky, he, he, he says, you know, second, second chance doesn't mean second rate, right. but he had to face customers who weren't afraid of their safety. They were afraid of a lousy product or experience right. at his cafes. And then he, he's actually listed now. He had to earn that respect. It can take time, um, but he is uh, one of the top-rated cafe bakeries in the United States on the, on the Yelp reviews because the history is: if you do this right, you don't get just an employee. You actually get an exceptionally dedicated and loyal employee, and that's a recipe for good performance, not right. bad performance. And then that reputation piece, uh, you know, I, I think that's changed over time. There might've been a, a point in time where, gee, this company hires people with criminal records. They must be a, you know, a problem company. Um, now I think people understand that uh, companies that are helping si solve societal problems as part of their business practices are companies you want to do business with. And certainly, many employees, particularly millennial and Gen Z employees, want to work for companies that are involved in more than delivering profits to shareholders. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I think, you know, there's the three issues, but they're the three ways of addressing them. And, you know, each one takes a little, is very company specific, but those are the broad guidelines. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving those. Cause I think that's important. If they, if you come at it sort of prepared with what someone's fears might be, it's going to just help make that conversation happen and flow much easier. Um, as you were talking to, I was thinking about a part in the book, um, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but you were talking about, you know, we, we all go through life every day. We don't know how many people we're coming into contact with that have a record of some sort that have been arrested or have been convicted of who knows what. And yet we somehow successfully live through the day. We go get our groceries, we go in, you know, Ubers and whatever. Right. And, and, it doesn't mean that you don't have a good experience with that person. It doesn't mean that they are not a loving person or a hardworking person. So um, I appreciate that you're shedding light on the fact that these are very valuable. Uh, I've met some really awful people who've never spent a day behind bars. Right. know, right. There are lots of people who have, you know, perfectly good, non, no, no perfectly clean records who are absolutely toxic employees. Yeah, absolutely. I want to uh, I want to take a pause for a second. We can catch our breath. I want to thank Trish, our friends at Paychex. This episode of At Work in America is brought to you by Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and software solutions for businesses of all sizes. The pandemic has completely changed how many people at work, leaving millions of job seekers reevaluating their priorities and making it vital for employers to find new ways to keep them supported and engaged. Paychex surveyed more than 600 HR leaders and more than 2,000 employees at different sized businesses across the US to find out what employers are getting wrong when it comes to the needs of their workforce. And what they found was a large discrepancy between what employers want and what employees think they want and when it comes to their organization. So to get into this and look at what's happening, why employees are leaving, and this gets to the heart of some of what we're talking about, companies can't find employees, uh, what you should be thinking about in order to attract and retain talent, you can download the findings at payx.me slash attracting and retaining talent. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And thanks to our friends at Paychex. Jeff, uh, I, I, I can't let this conversation end without getting into context because before the show, I share with you, I'm a big labor market geek 
and it's, it, it is a perfect storm in the labor market. And you also say right in the book, Jeff, this is like page one of the book. I'm going to read this. The argument for second chance hiring must stand alone as a business case to be sustainable and scalable. And I totally buy, believe you with that too. Like you, this can't just be, this is the right thing to do, right? For, for most organizations, right? JBM had to solve that problem of, of you know, getting staffed because they might've they closed down, honestly, if they couldn't have staffed up that, those facilities in, in Ohio. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about kind of a little more of the business case behind this and maybe a little bit of the context that you found in, in, the, in the labor market back in 2013 when you started looking at this and what's happening now, 10 years later. Sure, back in 2013, uh, we had a labor shortage already surfacing in certain industries. It was most pronounced in manufacturing. And when I started digging deeper, I found it wasn't for lack of applicants, it was for lack of applicants who could pass a drug test. And uh, for many manufacturers and other types of industrial companies, this is not, a, th this is a matter of workplace safety. You cannot let someone in, right? You can't be flexible uh, on this because you endanger your, your workforce. And as I started to explore that, I, I assumed back then, I assumed it was pot was the big issue. It, and uh, I started hearing, no, it was pills. Mm. And that's how I started, uh, how I recognized that the opioid epidemic was uh, uh, this, despite beyond being just this horrible family and community tragedy was also a workforce issue and obviously something that tends to bring out a lot of justice um, involvement. But it has spread from there and it, it became really noticeable in 2018. We flipped over from having traditionally in the US economy, you have uh, more, more uh, job seekers than you have job openings. Mm -hmm. And at some point in 2018, it flipped over. We had more job openings than job seekers. And it persisted for um, uh, something like 14 months. We'd never seen it persist that long. And then, you know, the, the, the pandemic kind of blew everything up. But as we come out on the other side of this, um, the uh, the, the what I used to call, what I call, used to call and may have called in the book the looming labor shortage. You know this labor shortage is coming. Remember the book came out in the middle of the pandemic. We had you know really high single digit unemployment at the time, and people were worried about anyone. Get, and I'm out there saying it's a labor shortage yeah. that's coming. And I said that because it's baked in by our demographics. Um, at the time the numbers were that we expected 10,000 baby boomers to retire each day for the next for the following decade. And you just didn't have, once the millennial generation was all in, you just didn't have enough, uh, we, didn't ha we, we didn't have enough births 20 and 30 years ago, quite, quite simply, and it's really hard to change that. Um, so uh, uh, what happened during the pandemic is we accelerated all these trends. And you had, uh, in particular, uh, the, the older workers retired early. Uh, St. Louis Fed estimated that uh, 2.4 million people have retired early. Some may unretire, but that's a huge loss. It's not just a, a loss of bodies, but uh, particularly in some of these fields like the trades and manufacturing, you're, you're losing your really real reservoirs of, of experience yes. and because of the, the what happened to U.S. manufacturing 20 years ago. You're kind of mi missing that middle link. So losing them is, is losing a, a lot. And then you had um, some women, uh, some men and women, but but more typically women statistically uh, uh, dropped out to watch over children who couldn't go physically to school. Some are staying out. Um, those many many of those are coming back. Um, and then you just stopped having enough coming in 
from births 20 years ago. Yeah. And so all of this has left us in a point where current numbers are something like uh, 10.9 million job openings in the United States and 6.3 million job seekers. We've never had a gap like this. And think about that, right? If you, if you let's say you get all those 6.3 million job seekers to come and take those opening jobs, you're still short four and a half, 4.6 million workers. And 4 million people are quitting their jobs every month, month right. on month on month, right? So Right. And, and yeah. many are getting reemployed and yeah, there's the churn sure. that goes on and all, all that. But we have a structural labor shortage. And yes, technology can be part of the solution. But ultimately, you can't grow your economy if you don't aren't able to grow your workforce. You can make up for some of it with productivity, but it's really hard to make up for you know, losing this many workers. So this is something that we've got to look at. We've got to say, not how do we trade the people you know, amongst each, how do companies trade one across the other of the, of the yeah. existing employees? You have to look at people who aren't even counted in the job seekers, who don't know about the opportunities, who've been marginalized completely from the labor force. And that's the point, right? In this world of the declining labor supply, this is an opportunity to expand that supply, to bring in people who are just not currently in the labor pool and bring them in, right? Correct. And, and it's not the only solution. Uh, you know, there's, let's get retirees coming back. Let's help working parents, you know, get flexibility that allows them to stay or come back to the labor force. But when you took, take a look at your starting point is 19 million people with felony convictions, and we know the vast degree to which they are overlooked and have dropped out or get into, because they have no other alternatives, get back into this cycle of, 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 uh, of crime. And um, what a waste. And we can no longer afford to waste that kind of talent. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, when you're talking about the, um, you know, the example, the case study in the book, where if you're going into a prison system and actually training people, you know, that's something that a lot of companies don't even think about doing. And so if you do have a company where maybe the skills are very precise that someone needs to have, and you can't find that, why not go train them? Right. Um, and it, and it will build up sort of, I don't know, an allegiance and, and connection to your company before they're even out. So that when they come out, they're going to be not only trained, but they're going to want to work for your company. Could you maybe talk about some of the financial um, benefits of hiring people who either have a record or maybe have, you know, have been arrested and not convicted? There, there are certainly some financial aspects to this too, that are very beneficial to the company. Absolutely. And they're very evident today when you have, uh, to, to Steve's point, these, this really the, the great resignation, right? And, and that is forcing all, all these companies to endure um, very high uh, costs because of that. And those costs are certainly in the thousands of dollars, even for fairly low level employees, disruptions to work, the lost productivity, because you've got to retrain someone, maybe hard costs of, of recruiting someone as someone else. Um, and you also have losses of trying to build a corporate culture. All these things, turnover is a really bad thing for companies and, and very, very difficult. What we have found with every piece of evidence points to is that if you hire people who have been overlooked and know they've been overlooked and you give them an opportunity, and then there's a second piece to this, you also have to make sure you are sensitive to the gaps they might have transportation, housing, mentorship, mm -hmm. if you give them the tools to thrive, you get an exceptionally loyal employee. These are employees with very low turnover costs, a very low turnover and turnover costs. 
And then if you have someone who really cares about their job and stays with you, they tend to be very productive employees and very productive employees tend to be very profitable employees. So it's a big win, but, but I have to emphasize, you got to do it right. There are people who business executives who have come to me and said, yeah, but that wasn't my experience. And when you dig down into what they were doing, it was not that. They were either in a tight labor market and said, oh, I guess I'll lower my standards and didn't go looking for, for talent. They went looking for bodies yeah. right. or they were focused only on the work opportunity tax credit, which is a fine thing. And companies that do this should absolutely take advantage of it as a peripheral benefit, not as the core yeah. reason, yeah. right? If you're just looking for a cheap employee, you get what you pay for. And then another my, I call that in the in the book and in my work, I call that the disposable employee model. You don't care about, you tend not to care about longevity. You, you know, it's cheap. What you're looking for is someone who's cheap will stick around for a while and low, low skill job. The, the more common problem that businesses have come across is they didn't understand this population and their special needs. So they would be discriminating in the positive way in uh, trying to select people who were good fits and who cared, but they didn't understand the roadblocks that these employees would have. And they didn't understand how to fill the gaps, right? A a any employer has a talent acquisition model. I wanna find the people who fit and I wanna empower them to thrive and be great employees. And the, the challenge here is that the, what it takes to thrive may be very different from this for this population. Not more expensive, you have lots of partners, in fact, who will help you provide it. Uh, uh, eight government agencies, nonprofits that'll help provide those wraparound services, but you as an employer have to know. So what would happen in that model, um, uh, which I call the undifferentiated uh, model, um, you, you seek out good employees, you, you get people who care, but then half of them can't succeed because they don't have the tools to succeed. And they might ghost you, right? They did, their car broke down, they don't have money for a repair, they don't know what to do because they've never had mentorship or never had a real employment. So they don't call in, they just don't show. And, uh, and I've got to meet with my parole officer on Tuesdays and Thursdays from one to two, right? Like, even uh, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you a terrible story of an Indiana construction company that hired, had great success hiring people with records. And they had one employee who was very, very dedicated, great employee. There's, we have a job out of state. We'd like you to, to do that. And the employee didn't want to disappoint his employer, was so dedicated, didn't know how to navigate the fact that he didn't have permission to go out of state. Oh. So he, uh, what was uh, the term is he violated parole. He was violated and went uh, back to prison, oh right? Here gosh. he is on track, rebuilding his life, a great employee, an employer who appreciates him, yeah. but he didn't want to employ, uh, disappoint his employer, didn't know how to articulate that. And these are the things that the employers who do this right learn from the get-go. They ask, you know, what's your, what's your schedule meeting your, your PO, your parole and probation officer? Mm -hmm. What are restrictions you have? What's your housing situation? What's your transportation situation? And these can be just part of the normal intake for all employees. Yeah. And it, it allows you not just to serve this specific population, but really anyone who's coming out of deep poverty will have a lot of these challenges. There's well. some great examples in the book from the JBM case study as well. Some other examples of, of, of some specific things that organizations can do about checking in, about questionnaires and things like that to, to try to 
avoid horrible situations like the one you just described Jeff. some of those things are going to happen right that's just that's just the way Correct. it is probably but uh to try to do the things you can do to to minimize their their likelihood is is, is an important thing and there's some great examples uh in the book that can help folks um go ahead trish I was going to say specifically, if if nothing else, in the back of the book, the appendix section has actual job applicant screening questions, has the recruitment documents that they used, has all different resources, how to do check-ins with people. So if you feel like you don't have a place to start, it's a good place to start and it has lots of resources. So I, I love that you included that. So it's not just talking about it. You're actually well, that, then operationalizing what you've talked about. That, that's the generosity of JBM. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. They shared their documents with me, may, allowed me to publish those as part of the book. And, and what I found is that second chance employers so get the societal and economic benefits that they are willing to share. You know, this is a trade secret in a sense. Um, right. Jeff Brown, the owner of the supermarkets chain in, in uh, it's a great second chance employer in Philadelphia, 500 of their 2,500 employees, uh, set up a nonprofit uh, that uh, trains for his company, but also trains for his competitors, right? Think about that. He, his nonprofit is training employees for his competitors, but he gets, he operates in actually what half of the stores are what would otherwise be food deserts. Yeah. Um, and he, he offers these great um, you know, clean, well-stocked grocery stores. And he gets that if everyone in this community is prospering, yeah, he'll prosper too. Yeah. And, that, and that's how all of us should see this. Yeah. Seeing the bigger picture. Jeff, we could go on for another hour. <laughs> I want to be respectful to your time. Uh, the book is Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. We will obviously put a link to how you can get the book in the show notes. Jeff, is there anything else you would maybe just advise? Our audience is largely HR professionals, HR leaders. Um, They're thinking about this or maybe have convinced whoever they need to convince this is a good thing. But really, JBM talks a lot about having to find the right partners and different uh, governmental facilities and different institutions, et cetera. Is there one or two things you'd say, hey, Think about this, do this, or go there, besides yeah, the book, obviously. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I would, would just start with, you have to recognize this labor shortage isn't going away, and that this is going to require an investment of time and effort. Maybe not money, but time and effort. But, but what good thing does it, right? I've never known anything in, business, in the business world that just falls into your lap. you got to work for it. And uh, this is no different, and there's no sugarcoating the challenges of this. Um, but um, as uh, my friend Ray Dalton, who's a second chance employer, who's just done an amazing job, says, second chance employees are more work up front, but they're worth it. And I think that can be said of this, of this process. I'll also highlight the work of the Second Chance Business Coalition. They are really focused on um, ultra-large uh, uh, companies. Um, but their website uh, also has a lot of resources. They've partnered with SHRM, the Society of Human Resource uh, Management. Many of your uh, listeners are, are SHRM yeah, members. Sure. SHRM yeah. has the Getting Talent Back to Work certif- certificate. Um, last, I, I don't know if this has changed, but um, I believe it is free. Um, so it's a certification program offered by SHRM. It's very rigorous, extremely well done, and they believe in this. And so they've made it free for both members and actually for non-members as well. Oh, that's great. Great stuff. Jeff, it's been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I've loved reading the book. I love the story and uh, just many, many thanks for sharing that uh, with us today. I really appreciate it. Delighted to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. Awesome.
All right, Jeff, uh, that's Jeff uh, Korzenik, author of Untapped Talent. We'll put the link in the show notes. I highly recommend it uh, if you're in HR, business leadership. Great, great stuff there. Uh, Trish, good stuff. Loved it. Good, good, good job on the first at work in America. How about that? I know it was really fun. And you know what? I, I'm not a huge reader lately just because we, you get so tied up in your work day. This was a quick, interesting read. I have to be honest with you. It, you know, two to three days I had it done and I've highlighted it to death. It's also one of those books. I think if you're like me, um, you can highlight really good sections and then go back to them when you need them. So it becomes almost like a textbook as well. So it's interesting to read, but then you can actually go back and like I said, at the end, operationalize a lot of these things. So um, yeah, really, really good training for uh, HR people. All right. Great, great stuff. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Great to be with you. Links in the show notes. Thanks to our friends at Patrix, of course. Uh, For our guest, Jeff Korzenek, Portrait McFarland. My name is Steve Bowes. We will see you next time. 